Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man through the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 29th, 2012, and this is episode 933 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today we're going to do a listener call-in show because it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yes, Friday, Friday, Friday. We're not having monster trucks. We're having monster calls from the audience. These are calls that you've made to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, and odds are... Uh, about 30 to 40% that within about two to three weeks you'll hear yourself on a Friday show. If you don't hear yourself within two to three weeks and you think your call is a good one, there's a couple things could have happened. One, too many calls to fit them all in the air. That happens every single week, so some of them just get screened out. Uh, some of them don't even get listened to. They just kind of atrophy off after a while just because of call volume. Uh, so it's kind of an order of receive type of thing that I go through the screening process with them. I don't know. Maybe I need to get Dorothy screening them uh, instead of me. That might be a way to uh, get a better you know, overall quality, but right now that's the way we do it. It's the way I've done it for years now, so uh, if you just don't hear yourself, call in uh, again and uh, try to call from a quiet area. You get about two to three minutes to, uh, to wrap your call up, and if you mess up, just hang up and call back. That's the easy way to do it. A couple people did that this week, and their second calls uh, were just fine, and they got on the air. Uh, before I get into your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help cake care, take, cake care of you. They don't cake care of you. See, I don't edit this stuff, guys. I'm really, I'm really this good at what I do. No, I'm just, uh, I just don't care what I mess up. Uh, anyway, they do do a lot to help take care of you because they make sure that shows for you here five days a week for about an hour to an hour and a half a day by supporting the show financially. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal, who is the original survival podcast sponsor. How are the original one? They're the first one. They're the ones that showed up at first and said, hey, we want to formally sponsor the show. I built the whole program when I realized that when I vetted them, the way that I really wanted to vet my sponsors, they qualified. And uh, they're, you know, all of my sponsors, but especially Safe Castle, are a personal endorsement from me. They're not just people that show up with a check. I get... Requests for advertising rates all the time now, guys. I, I, this is kind of a side note here as I'm talking about Safe Castle Day, but I, I really do. Uh, I get at least four or five serious advertising inquiries a, a month, and I have to tell them, forget about it. I'm sorry. Look at the MSB, see if you want to do a discount for them, because I don't have any advertising to sell you. Well, can we buy links? No, you can't buy links. I don't do that. Can we do this? No. I have a program. Go read it. If you want to get on the list, you can. You're wasting your time. The list is a dozen long, and I have sponsors that have been here and never left, and I lose about one sponsor every two years unless I fire one. Um, Safe Castle's been a sponsor now for about three and a half years. The show's been here four. That, that says something about their longevity. And you will find everything you can imagine for your prepping at Safe Castle. And they're at prepared.pro is their website. Again, prepared.pro is their website. And you can link there over to their uh, site where they do hardened shelters and check those out as well. Check them out today, Safe Castle Royal. Remember, they have a discount buyer's club. It costs $49 one time. You get discounts on what they sell for the rest of your life. Big discounts. And if you're a member support brigade member, another way they support this show is all member support brigade members get that lifetime membership with Safe Castle 
for free, which pays for all but $1 of your first year. How awesome is that? Next up today, backyard food production. You know, I talk about growing your food all the time, and really the way we want to do this is if we have to do it small scale, we have to do it small scale. But what would be great is if most Americans could turn their backyard, even if it's a tenth of an acre, into a food production machine. That's what Marjorie Wildcraft with her DVD on backyard food production can do for you. You can learn more about that DVD at backyardfoodproduction.com. The bonus CD or DVD that comes with it with all the documents and everything is probably worth the price of the video. So look at it as getting an awesome video on how to do this stuff for free and a tremendous number of resources and documents, plans, recipes, you name it. It's all there. Check it out today. Backyardfoodproduction.com. Of course, the best way to, to visit Backyard Food Production and to visit uh, Safe Castle Royal and to visit all our other sponsors, go to our site first, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on their links in the right-hand margin, and you'll know you're dealing with somebody that actually carries my personal endorsement. Uh, last but not least today, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, first responders. Hey, man, send me an email before you join to jack at the com with service discount or military discount in the subject line, and I will get back to you and give you a special discount code before you join to thank you for your service. All right, I got a couple announcements today, kind of a commentary without a call and an announcement. Again, I want to remind you guys, I'm going to be at the self Reliance Expo, July 27 and 28, of, uh, uh, for uh, doing one, I'll be doing a panel discussion on Friday, uh, which is the 27th, and on the 28th, I'll be doing a keynote speech. The keynote speech is going to be, I think, at 9.20 a.m., so on Saturday, it'll be Saturday in the morning. Uh, right now, I'm working with Ron and, uh, and uh, uh, Scott over there. Uh, to put together something where maybe you guys that are TSP listeners can get in a bit early, get better seats, stuff like that. So I'll let you know more about that. I don't remember the time for the panel discussion, but I want to say it's around 10 or 11 on Friday, 10 or 11 a.m. on Friday. So uh, I will be hanging out there most of the day. I will make myself available as I get more details from then. I'm where, you know, like where's a good area to set up a staging area to meet me or whatever. I'll make sure that I'm available for quite a few hours a day. Uh, I did have one listener email me about putting together some kind of a meetup offsite. Uh, I'll get back with that person if you're listening. I, I haven't gotten to you yet, but I will. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about today, this is kind of a political thing, and I try to stay as apolitical as possible because basically I don't see the point most of the time because I think that the we've got two sides of the same disaster when I look at politics. I have no love for the mainstream Republican Party or the mainstream Democratic Party. I think they're both driving the car to the cliff. About the only thing that changes is the angle of approach and the speed of the vehicle. Um, but when something really big happens and it's going to impact the election, then I want to talk about it. Uh, and that is, of course, the Supreme Court decision to uphold Obamacare. I'm going to give you an angle on this you probably haven't heard anywhere in the media before. Maybe you'll hear it sometime soon. I don't know. First of all, the Supreme Court just called the President of the United States a liar in order to side with him. Uh, the Supreme Court had a, a, a decision, a majority decision, stating that the individual mandate to purchase health care under the Commerce, Commerce Clause was unconstitutional. So the, the, the decision to say, but it's a tax, and a tax is constitutional... Right, um, is in essence saying the President of the United States lied to the face of the American people repeatedly when he sold Obamacare and told us over and over and over and over again 
It's not a tax. The Supreme Court says it's a tax. That's the only reason it stood. Of course it's a tax. John Roberts, I find disgraceful for the decision, but if I look at it truly from a fully legalistic standpoint, I have to say that he went out of his way to do it, but his logic is not wrong. It is a tax, and it is legal for the government to tax you. The danger is that they have now set a precedent that the government can tax behavior. They can tax you for what you do. So they could have conceivably now come up with a tax that says if you drink soda pop, you get a tax. Right? It's actually worse, though, because they've set a precedent that says not only can the government tax you for what you do, the government can tax you for doing nothing. See, what they're saying is if you don't purchase health care, we'll tax you for not acting. So they could say, we're going to put a tax on people that don't exercise. See, and to me, now we're back into a place where it's not constitutional. So I believe the overall overriding thing is the law is unconstitutional, and Roberts threaded a needle with a technicality. And the really sad part about that is he did it for the administration. The administration never put the argument up, and it's sad. It's very sad. Um, but this now leaves the people of the United States with two choices, live with it or repeal it. Uh, candidate, uh, candidate Romney has stated that he will repeal, begin the process of repealing Obamacare on day one of his administration. I would just like to remind people of a few things. Barack Obama promised to close Guantanamo Bay. It is still open. Barack Obama promised us to our faces as he ran for office that all legislation would be clearly posted for at least 48 hours on a website so the American people could read it and talk to their elected officials prior to the vote being done on it. Healthcare and the stimulus are two examples of where that didn't happen, and in fact, it really didn't ever happen. There's times where the legislation's been released, but we would be have led to been, been led to believe that there would be a government website set up to do this as a matter of course, That has not been done. I could keep going with lies that Barack Obama told you to your face and never acted on and hasn't done a damn thing on prior to his election. I could also go back to people like George Bush Sr. who told you there would be no new taxes. George Bush Jr. who told you there would be no nation building. So my point before I say what I'm about to say, because I don't want anybody to think I've jumped on the Mitt bandwagon, But my point before I say what I'm about to say is just because a presidential candidate goes out on a limb and absolutely 100% commits to something and says I absolutely will do it doesn't mean that they'll do it. And you can say, well, Obama, you know, the Republicans. No, no, because he had a super majority for two years. He could have done anything he wanted. He chose to use that majority and focus 100% of his efforts on a health care program that is going to bankrupt the country. There's no way out of that. It's going to bankrupt the country. Constitutional or not, that's the, the mathematics behind what this thing does. It's going to drive health care through the roof. Barack Obama promised you nobody would lose their health care due to Obamacare. That's already beginning to happen. Barack Obama promised you no taxes would be raised to support Obamacare. That's already been verified by the court. That's exactly what that they have done. They have taken the people that choose not to insure themselves and tax them to provide for the people that get government-provided or government-supported health care. Just, just want to be clear on this, because this is what I'm going to tell you. The media is in a, a frenzy. 
It's like a giant freaking uh, orgy that they're having. It's like they've all lathered themselves up and they're rolling around together because the mainstream media loves Obama. And this was going to be a major shot to the heart of the media that has backed this guy in spite of the fact that he's lied to the people that voted for him. He's lied to his supporters and they continue to support him blindly. And, and this is like, this they think, this has saved Obama. He's going to get reelected. He's going to, this is, this is his moment in the sun. Of course, Obama went out of his way, as the media put it, uh, to not spike the ball. Here's why. Obama may not be really as smart as they tell us he is, but the people handling him and running his campaign, they're very, very smart people. They know exactly what they're doing. They know this is actually the worst thing that could have happened to Barack Obama from an, a reelection standpoint. Do you know why Barack Obama beat John McCain? Because John McCain had milk toast supporters. They're like, ah. Yeah, there were people that hated Obama so much they showed up to vote for McCain. But when it came to the pro-McCain side, the people that would show up because he was there, very, very weak, very, very milk toast, very, very nothing. Obama, on the other hand, had people that showed up, the base, to hate on McCain, right? Pushed a lot of the swing voters are over, but motivated a lot of people that otherwise would not have voted. He got out the vote, as they said. And people got out and voted because, one, they were pissed at Bush. Two, McCain didn't excite them in any way. So since they were pissed and they wanted to do something, they went for the guy that excited them. It's the third tier of voters that almost nobody talks about. They talk about the base, right? There's a 40-40 split in this country of, of voters, people that vote all the time. They, about 40% are going to vote Democrat, right? And they're just going to. It, it could be a freaking dog running for, for the office. And they're going to, and there's an equal number of people, they're going to vote Republican no matter what. They're going to vote Republican no matter what. Doesn't matter. And a 20% swing vote in there. But a lot of times that swing vote will split almost down the middle. Most elections are like, when you look at the popular vote, they're like 49-51, right? What really pushes things is can a candidate Get people that normally don't show up to show up. And if he can get, you know, like a 5% number out of the total voters of people that otherwise would not have been there. Huh. Well, guess what? Those types of people aren't real politically active. They just get really excited and respond. They do it out of anger or do it out of excitement. Well, last time they were driven by hope and change. The hope and change has not come. And the one thing that they really think that this guy did for them, the health care bill, that they have no understanding of because it actually hasn't done much yet, is just been saved. So they don't have a lot to be excited about. The people that know what this thing really is, the people that are pissed, the people that are angry about it, they're now motivated. Even a guy like me who says, I'll probably vote for Gary Johnson. I, I know my state's not a swing state. I know it's not going to matter who I vote for. So I might as well vote my conscience. Even a guy like me goes, damn, maybe we should, maybe you should put this Romney guy in just to see if he'll do what he said he did. And if he doesn't do it, then people like me can be vindicated and say, see, see, they're all selling us out. But I think this just may have cost Barack Obama his reelection. I really do. Not because of what I, my opinion, but because of just as an analyst looking at the, the politics of the, of the thing. I do want to point something out for you guys, though, that have always had a problem with me saying, I will not vote for the lesser of two evils anymore. You guys have had a silver bullet objection, the one you thought you could hang your hat on. But, Jack, 
if we put a Democrat in and he gets to a point of Supreme Court justice, think of what it'll do to the balance of the court. We need more justices like Scalia and Roberts. Roberts just sold your ass out. Appointed by George W. Bush. Sold you out probably for 30 pieces of silver. Your silver bullet objection is dead. And those of you that think, well, you know, it could have been worse, and Bush did some other things, and, you know, they were good justices. And two words for you, somebody that never made it, Harriet freaking Myers. Okay, three words. Your silver bullet objection, guys, of the court being most important is dead. Romney will appoint better justices than Barack Obama. Really? Based on what? Go look at the quotes from the guy about gun control. Now he says he's on board with, you know, the Second Amendment and all. If you look at the quotes from this guy, this guy wasn't just a guy that made compromises with gun control people in Massachusetts. He made statements that were directly in conflict with the current statements he's making now. The man is as much a progressive as Barack Obama. The only thing that might benefit us by putting this clown in office instead of the current clown is he's made so many commitments he's going to have to address at least some of them and if you give him a republican senate and a republican congress and they don't repeal obamacare okay i actually look at it this way either way is good if you do that and they don't repeal obamacare the american people are going to snap and maybe they'll finally realize that you got to stop doing the same thing over and over again or they'll pull it apart and put it back together in some kind of frankenstein way and at least we'll get rid of it so, you know, maybe I could come up with a case for doing it. I know this was a long thing that wasn't your calls, and it's going to be a long show today, but I just wanted to point that out to you because I don't think anybody else is going to give you the analysis that I just spent about uh, 10 minutes giving you. And I think it's the most accurate analysis that you're going to get. And I wanted to point it out to you one more time, you guys, to believe that it's so important that we have a Republican appointing our justices. One of the bastions of conservatism on the court sold you out. I don't believe for a second that this man really believed what he did was right. I believe he was compromised, and I believe he was told what to do, and I believe if you don't believe there's people pulling the strings of the politicians and the justices, you're wrong. This man sold you out in some way, financially, morally, in some way. The forces were put upon him to corrupt him because he went out of his way and created an argument on behalf of the defense. He sold you out. Please don't forget that when you're trying to make changes in this country. The people you believe you can trust will sell you out just like the people you know you can't trust. You can trust yourself. You can trust your fellow Americans, the citizenry around you. You cannot trust these people in Washington. If there's anything in you left to believe that you can, hopefully this is your wake-up call. Now let's stop being so somber, get on to some more uh, fun things, and take some of your calls today. Hey, Jack. Kim from Richmond. Uh, two quick questions. Um, I was looking at bug-out locations, searching online. I come across a couple that said natural gas well on site. Um free natural gas, I'm assuming there's a lease to somebody else, but would that not be the ideal bug-out location? I'm assuming you could hook up a generator and run electricity off of it and be totally off the grid. Anybody with experience or knowledge of that or comments on that? On the second one, I was looking, uh, working on some homestead plans and thought about firewood farming and harvesting. saw a lot online about hybrid poplar. seems like you know, an acre of Land, you can get five cords of wood a year if you pop some quarter, you know, a quarter a year. 
and keep going, but several friends have suggested to me that poplar is not a good firewood. Just wondering if uh, you or anybody out there has had any experience with uh, this, this method of farming the hybrid poplars and can speak to, uh, I guess, its efficiency. My friends have stated that it burns hot and fast and doesn't really hold heat. Um, that's it now. Uh, love the show. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Well, those are uh, two good questions. Let's start out with the first one. Um, free natural gas on a property. It's not something I've ever really looked deeply into, but I do have a cursory understanding of how and why this occurs and what it would mean for you. Um, generally speaking, it is either due to the fact that a, a pipeline needed access through a property where there wasn't a sufficient easement or they're actually pumping gas from an area and they would and the, the landowner has mineral rights and they've made a deal in may in many times instead of royalties to pay out gas instead of royalties, which has no upfront cash expenditure for the people pumping the gas. They basically don't care to a degree how much you use. I don't know if there's a cap on usage or if it's even metered, and I would imagine that in some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. You have to ask the existing landowner as part of the seller's disclosure, are there any limitations or is there any term? In other words, is this a pipeline running through that's always going to be pumping gas from somewhere and it's almost an indefinite thing that there'll be, there'll be gas there, or is this a, 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 a pumping operation that when the, the current field is depleted that it's 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 gone and, and what is an estimated timeline of that to make some decisions on it and what are any limitations on the monthly usage and if it's completely unlimited it's completely unlimited is it a perfect bug out location it's a great asset let me put it to you that way but i would really be careful about building a, a house putting in an electrical system being completely off-grid Tying into that gas line and depending on that gas line to provide my electricity for the rest of my life. Anything can eventually go away. A pipeline rock gets changed or whatever. And think about what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with an exchange. Instead of paying you for rights or paying you for easement, they're, they're giving you gas. It's a barter deal. So the minute that they don't need whatever they're getting from you, then they're not going to give you your stuff anymore. They're not obligated to keep the pipeline there, right? Or they're not obligated to keep pumping the shale that they're pumping or whatever. So it's probably something you can rely on to a degree, but I just wouldn't rely on it permanently. Now, absolutely, if you buy yourself a really great backup generator, even if you're on grid power, running that generator often with your free gas and cutting your electric bill, man, make the best of it. Um, what you'll, you know, so the, the, you know, so that's, It's kind of like it's a nice thing to have, but you can't depend that it'll always be there. And you're going to have to get really specific with your seller's disclosure, and your real estate agent uh, should be able to help you with that in making sure that you know all the ins and outs of it. The next thing on the hybrid poplar, this is one of those things where people talk more than they know. Okay, Would I rather have a great big pile of split locust and, and oak or a great big pile of split alder and poplar. Well, I'd rather have the oak and the locust. That would be really high-quality firewood. That's just awesome stuff. It burns low and slow, and it provides heat for a long time. But does that mean that if I put poplar in my fireplace that I'm not going to get a good result? It doesn't mean I'm not going to get a good result. It just means my results won't be as good as you know burning white oak. 
but I'm going to get plenty of heat. Will it burn more faster? Yes. Will it cause any kinds of problems with my chimney? Not really. No, it's a, it's a good, clean-burning wood. I also have to look at, well, what am I going to be burning this in? If I'm burning it in a, if I build a, uh, you know, kind of a rocket mass heater, then, then, then I'd actually rather have something like poplar than oak. It burns hot and fast, heats the thermal mass quickly, you burn a small amount for a long duration, it, it's actually more optimum. Because uh, you're going to get a really efficient burn out of a rocket stove or a rocket mass heater with something like poplar. Um, not that oak won't burn really well in there too, but it's going to burn great. So it's it's not that there's anything wrong with it. Now here's here's the other side of that. I would never plant an acre of poplar. I would. Ne I mean, I just would never do anything like that. I, I just think that's insane. You're monocropping timber and a relatively low quality timber. I would be more apt to go out and try to put in, if I had, let's say, five acres of land to work with, one and a half, two acres that has wood that can be cosmosed and taken out, and I would make poplar a component of that. So now I'm burning a mix, and I would look to bring other things into the mix. But if here's the thing. A lot of times people are able to get poplar and other lower-quality hardwoods for free. Because of this, this, this bad rap they have. And then they don't even take it because they're like, well, uh, it's not really good firewood. If you put it in the fireplace, it'll burn and heat'll come out. If you have a low cost of acquisition and you burn two cords versus one to get the same effect, but you have to buy the one cord of high quality stuff for, I don't know, 90, 100, $20 a cord, and you can get the other cord off your own lander for free, right? The other two cords for free or for next to nothing. Guess what? It's a pretty good deal. It makes a lot of ash, but it doesn't make a lot of creosote or problems like that. It's a decent, it's a decent wood. It's not a high quality firewood. So there's nothing wrong with it, including it in a mix. And there's nothing wrong with burning it heavily if it's what you have. Keep in mind that we don't like to burn conifers down here in the, in the continuous 48 states because we have so much flipping hardwood out there. But if you go up to Alaska, all those guys do is burn, burn uh, conifers because that's what grows up there, and they do just fine doing it. So take anything anybody says about firewood with a grain of salt. There's certainly some things you shouldn't do, like burn rotted wood or stuff that's going to smolder or heavy amount wood with lots of sap in it, not fully seasoned. But uh, you can, it, it, to, to put it bluntly, it all burns. Uh, let's take another call. Jack, Jacob Farley up here in Michigan. I got a question about what to do with your bug out bag if you're carpooling. We, last weekend, me and some friends went out about an hour and a half away to go swim in Lake Michigan, and since I wasn't able to drive, I didn't have my bag with me, and I really didn't, I couldn't think of a way to convince some of my friends who aren't really big into preps to bring the bag, but I didn't know, I didn't want to not bring it, but I Couldn't really get that. Couldn't really find a way to bring it. So just curious on what your thought is to do when, if you're not driving and you can't bring your bag with you, any tips for you? Thank you. Now I, I can understand this one, especially when you're piling into a car and there's not a lot of room and everybody's taking. Like if you're going to a lake, you're probably taking coolers and stuff like that. And guys that are not familiar with prepping are like, "What the hell do we need your extra crap for?" Um, and it's to be expected. So this is what I do. There's plenty of times where I go somewhere that taking my full 72-hour kit is difficult. 
And what I don't want to do is be without anything. So I have what I call my mini bug out bag, right? And that is built on a camelback mule with a hundred ounce hydration bladder. It's a very small compact bag and I have basic things that I would need in there to get by. So you have to carry a lot less gear. It weighs a lot less. It takes a lot less space up. But if you're going there with somewhere with somebody you don't even want to have a discussion with, what is that? It's my camel bag. I've got water in it. There you go. And then, you know, you can put like small things of bug repellent in there, a knife, um, some cordage uh, containers. You can, you know, kind of follow Canterbury's five C's really easy with a bag of that size and a little bit of other stuff. Is it optimum? Is it ideal? No, but it should be enough to get you by in those times where you, it's just not practical. So that's my easy answer for you. Instead of trying to convince the people that you don't really have time to convince and they don't want to listen, scale things back to a mini kit. Uh, I wouldn't even call this a mini kit because a mini kit is you know an Altoids 10 in your front pocket. I would call this a, a modest kit, right? So instead of a full-size kit, this is a modest kit or a, a small kit. Uh, and I would take that approach, and then you don't even have to explain it. It's my water. Done. And that is a good thing to carry around anyway because staying hydrated is so important to our day-to-day -day survival, not just in a disaster. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, this is Ben from Denver again. Where is my mind on the forums? Uh, MSB. Uh, my question is how quickly do you think that we could convert to a cashless system? Um, I've been doing a real great job over the last year of paying off a lot of debt thanks to a lot of side work and, uh, you know, just helping people out and making a little extra cash on the side. And that extra cash that, you know, not a lot of people know about has been uh, pretty beneficial towards a lot of things. So um, I was just curious how quickly you think that could happen, you know, if they could do it just kind of overnight or if it would be like over a year span or over a couple years or uh, just wanted your opinion on it. I uh, love what you do, man. Uh, made my life amazing in many ways. So thank you for everything you do, man, and uh, keep on rocking. Uh, my answer is surprisingly and shockingly fast. And to, to think about how they would do it and get, a, get around the issue like people have cash on hand and they would have to rush to turn their cash in, how would they address that? They would do it like this. If I were the evil overlords and I wanted to get my nation into a cashless society as quickly as possible and I wanted to come all, overcome all the but-what-if objections, what I would do is I would set a very short-term deadline to terminate commerce with cash. So I'd say we've passed this act. It's going to be over in two months, six months, nine months, maybe a year at the mo absolute limit because I want to get it done before it's challenged. And that's, the, I, that's part of what you got to understand. I got to get, I got to get it done. I got to get it in place before it's challenged. And I would outlaw commerce with cash. And then I would say, but if you have cash, don't worry. Don't worry at all. You can take your cash to a U.S. government facility and convert it to digital currency for the next 10 years. We don't care. No problem at all. In fact, we'll set it up where you can take your cash to the bank for the next 10 years. The only thing you can't do with your cash is exchange it for goods and services. And anybody we catch taking it for goods and services, we will prosecute in some way that's part of this act that they would pass. Because what they want is their eyeballs on every transaction that occurs. 
That's what they want. They want their eyeballs on every, they want every single transaction to have a record that can be traced back to an individual so that they can come have complete and total control of the economy. They don't want any private commerce. That's that's what this is about. The elimination of private commerce. They'll come up with all kinds of crap. Well, drug dealers this and that, you know, black market that and no, they don't want you and your next door neighbor able to do business with each other in cash. That's what because that gives you a level of control that they don't have, and these people are not going to be content until they have complete and total control. I don't want to go off on a tangent again, but that's what this healthcare thing's about. Look, we have six real primary needs: food, water, shelter, security, right, energy, and let's call sanitation and healthcare one and the same. Because they're so closely related to each other. You get bad sanitation, you get sick, you get sick, you need medical care. They want complete control over those six areas. If you control those six areas, and over, that's what the government gets to control, and then the financial masters above them in the pyramid control the money, you exercise totalitarian control over everything. Let me ask you, how much control does the government have over shelter right now? How many rules and regulations and codes and crap get done just to build a freaking house? When our forefathers came here, they took an axe and a saw and a jack plane and a bag of nails into the woods and they built a house and they survived. We don't need this crap. How much, how much is being done to control water? How many wars are being fought over rights to water right now? How much control does your government have of your food? They even own the freaking organic label now. Think about that. And how many people are they putting out of business on small farms? How much are they doing to inhibit people? How many lemonade stands has the government shut down? Right? So if we just keep going through this, you'll see that every one of your survival needs, they want control over. Health and sanitation. This is what they do. And then the final linchpin is complete control of the currency. If I control your six needs in your currency... You are completely, totally my slave. So that's what they want. So they'll move very, very, very quickly when they do this. And what they'll do again is they'll allow the cash to be turned in. And this is what will happen. For like a year, when you turn in cash, they won't even ask you any questions. They won't ask you where it came from. And they'll basically say for the first year, it's 100% clemency. We don't care if you knock an old lady out and if, unless we catch you for doing it, we don't care where the money came from. In the second year, they'll come out with a form you got to fill out. And they'll try to push people to hurry up and do it. By the third and fourth year, you're going to have to fill out some kind of detailed analysis of where everything came from so that they can charge you taxes out of the money that you turn in. And they'll just slowly erode because what will happen in the beginning is you and I will still exchange cash. As long as I can take it to the bank and convert it to digital currency, I don't care that we're not supposed to do it. But they'll make more and more scrutiny over the money. And in the final year, basically you'll be, you, you might as well just put handcuffs on yourself before you show up with your cash and turn it in or just give it to them. Just, you know, just say, well, I'm making this a donation. That's how they're going to try to do this thing. It will be challenged in a court of law. It will be challenged at the Supreme Court level, and you'll probably get sold out again. And that's why they'll have to move fast. The quicker they can get it into place, the easier it will be to stand up to the judicial challenges that will come along with it. And they're going to try to do this. I can tell you how that it's going to happen very, very quickly when they make the decision to do it. 
I can't tell you how long it's going to take before they get to a point where they can get away with doing it. That's what they're concerned about right now, is building up enough of a case to get away with doing it. They'll probably let other countries that are more socialist in nature, more fascist in nature than we are already, go first so they can point at them as shining examples of the way it should be. Canada Healthcare, get it? Right? And Canada is going to go to cashless society, and Holland and Denmark, I mean, Denmark is going to go to a cashless society faster than we are. They're probably going to be the first two, in my estimation, to do this. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, recently, I went to the gun store to uh, buy some self-defense rounds um, just for uh, a handgun for uh, my concealed carry. I was a little intimidated by all of the different just tops and brands of uh, ammunition that said that it was, uh, you know, for uh, personal protection. I mean, what do you look for, Jack? Do you have a specific brand that you prefer? Do you, are you looking at feet per second? Obviously, you're going to want a hollow point of some kind. Uh, how does somebody like me that's just, you know, an amateur at this, how, how, how do we know what is uh, the best round for self-defense? I know that it's going to vary from caliber. You know, um, different brands are going to change. How somebody like me know what's a good round for self-defense? Uh, thanks, Jack. Appreciate the show. Thanks a lot, man. Bye. Personally, I think this is the most overrated thing on the planet Earth. I really do. I, I, I think that it, it's a it's a huge um, mistake to, to even worry about. Uh, you know, like, do I pick brand A, brand B, brand C? What works best and functions best in your weapon And like you said, obviously you want to use hollow point rounds for self-defense. If you do that, I'm telling you, I, like I'll tell you what I personally carry in my 1911 are federal HST uh, 230 grain, and I carry the plus P version at ammo because it's a good quality freaking ammunition, and it functions flawlessly in my 1911. And I've had some other uh, hollow point 45s that don't function quite as flawlessly. And if I'm going to carry a 45, I like to carry a full payload when it comes to the grains of the ammo, but it's a personal opinion. And I think that you could carry just about anything that's a quality manufactured ammunition and you're as safe as you're going to be. This is a fundamental reality. Handguns are an inferior weapon to rifles, carbines, and shotguns period, the end. Nothing you do in any type of handgun that you're, you know, you're going to carry. I mean, we can get a little bit ridiculous with like a 454 Casole or something like that, and we're kind of moving into like 4570 performance or something like that, but they're just not reasonable as a carry gun, especially in a concealed carry, you know, suburban, urban, day-to-day -day environment for most people. So anything that we're going to carry, a 45, a 40, a 9, a 380, any of these, a 38 Special, 357 Magnum, any of these things are woefully inadequate Compared to something is 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 moderate, if you want to call it, is like a two two three, you know, like a standard AR round. Uh, certainly, hugely inadequate compared to anything you might use for deer hunting, like a two forty three or a thirty thirty Winchester. You know, I'm not even going to the thirty oh six, you know, seven mm eight world. Just just these these these, you know, what we call mid class deer rounds are hugely advantageous over them. But carrying that sidearm beats the hell out of a sharp stick. Most people hit with a single handgun round 
tend to survive unless they're hit in a very lethal area and given very, you know, and have some duration prior to uh, medical treatment. Uh, a lot of times even hit in areas you would expect that they would expire. One thing about human beings that's different than most mammals is the way our bodies are positioned and the way that we are shot, we're almost never shot broadside. So if we're hitting the chest, generally speaking, even if we lose a lung, we have another lung going. Now, there's things like if we sever the femoral artery, if we hit one of the main arteries or veins coming in or out of the heart, if we're hit in the head and we get penetration, if we're hit in the spine, especially the upper spine like the neck, Right, A lot of these things can cause instant kills, but many times they don't. So the belief that I'm going to buy like some, some different ammo and it's going to perform so much better that it's going to compensate where if I would use brand B, the guy's not down, but if I use brand A, he's down. It's just really not very realistic. So my suggestion to anybody is look at reasonably decent self-defense rounds for your weapon and specifically for those of us that shoot a semi-auto handgun instead of a revolver because your revolver is probably going to function no matter what you put in it and it's one good case for a revolver buy a box of two or three different brands go out and shoot it whichever one gives you the least amount of problems and malfunctions with your weapon is probably what you should be carrying don't believe the marketing hype they've done the same thing with self-defense ammunition as they've done with hunting ammunition when I was a kid and you needed ammo to go deer hunting you went down to the center supply hardware store in town and you talked to the old man on the other side of the county he said hey I need some ammo he said what are you doing I said deer hunting I got a 306 and he'd say you want 150 or 180 grains and whatever I said he'd either pull Winchester or Remington green box off the counter I got these are these okay yeah, let me get two boxes so I have a box to you know side in and practice a little bit with, and I'll have a box for hunting season, and I'm good. And you shot a deer, and it died. Now, every hunting magazine that you open up, you turn a page, and there's a picture of a perfectly mushroom bullet, and somehow, like, the deer are now, like, GMO deer on steroids, and, like, you need this special super-duper, you know, bronze-plated, freaking solid copper, super-duper titanium-pointed, uh, unbelievably you know, aerodynamic giant mushroom bullet to kill a freaking deer. And your forefather shot him with a round lead ball, and they died just the same. So when you go from the hunting magazine to the tactical magazine, you get the same marketing message. Instead of a deer, there's a guy sneaking in the house, and they got the same mushroom bullet. Right? It's just freaking marketing. Paul Wheaton. No, that's just marketing. Is there some crappy ammo out there? Yes, that's why you buy a couple boxes and run it through your gun. But most of the stuff marketed as self-defense ammo is good self-defense ammo. It just isn't any better than the competitors. Why do they do it? Because Winchester wants you to buy Winchester. Federal wants you to buy Federal. Remington wants you to buy Remington. Right. So they all try to make themselves different. But the reality is, I don't want to be shot with any of them. Neither does the person that would be assaulting you. Don't overthink this. Let this one go and let your gun give you the answer. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. I'd like to get your thoughts on open carry of pepper spray and stun guns. Thank you. I've not given a tremendous amount of thought to it. I have to say that many times when I'm carrying pepper spray, it's it's in some ways an open carry. Uh, I like to carry the Cold Steel uh, Inferno that goes on a keychain. I replace it every six months. 
uh, because I don't believe that those those small canisters have very long shelf lives. You could probably get a year out of it if I ever need it. I want it to freaking work. So every six months I replace it. And generally speaking, what I do is I attach it to my keys. And many times I've got my keys kind of in my front pocket and actually a little a little key fob and the uh, and the cold steel stuff hanging out so that if I need it, I can just pull it out and use it. So um, I, I guess obviously I must think that's okay or I wouldn't do it. Um, when it comes to something like holstered larger cans of pepper spray, I don't know. I think that attracts attention to you that you really don't want. I think most people, when they see my keychain, unless they know what to look for, they wouldn't really even notice what it is. It just looks like a little black plastic thing. It could be any type of keychain thing. Uh, with a stun gun, again, I think it attracts attention to you. This is kind of my feeling about open carry in general. If I open carry, I've revealed myself to you that I have certain means of defense. On some levels, that can be a deterrent. But the determined criminal, the determined thug, the determined piece of crap, now knows what they have to neutralize first. They know exactly what they're dealing with. So if you're carrying a stun gun on your side and I want to assault you, well, the first thing I'm going to do is go for your stun gun. Right, And when you reach down for it to fight me for it, I'm going to probably clock you in the face with something heavy or stab you or shoot you. So you've given up the, the element of surprise of response. So I'm not in love with it. But it is a two-edged sword, and you have to balance where are you, what type of environment are you in, and is it better for your strength to show, or is it better for your strength to con be concealed? And I think that's largely situational. And I think that's very much the case in just about any situation with something, whether it should be concealed or revealed, including a knife, including a gun. Many states have open or closed carry. You can do either or. And there's definitely times if I lived in a state like that, and I don't, but if I lived in a state that allowed open carry, where I would say this is a place to open carry. You know, maybe it's just because I'm walking down the, 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 the trail in the wilderness and I want to have an even quicker access to my weapon and I'm more concerned about a mountain lion than, than a two-legged piece of scum, right? Maybe it's because I'm in a certain area where it's generally accepted to carry open and it just nobody even thinks any way over it. It's just more convenient to do. But if I'm going to be going into areas where it's going to attract attention, even just cause concern, I would pro if I have the option to also carry concealed, I'd rather carry concealed. See, and this is why I prefer legislation that allows either. Because it allows for the individual who has the right to self-defense to make their own choice as to how they carry for that defense and to what they carry for that defense. But in general, I don't know. I think if you're walking around with like a three-ounce can of pepper spray in one of those leather holsters the way the police do, I think it just kind of says, hello, look at me, and I, I don't like hello, look at me. So it's not so much that I care that it's, that it's visible in any way, it's how that particular thing is visible. Uh, I think that it would be kind of smart for some company out there to come up with a really high-quality pepper spray canister, because the keychains do have their limits in volume, in range, and in lifespan, that the bigger cans seem to do better in all three categories. Longer lifespan, better range, definitely more volume. To create something that would look like maybe a BlackBerry case or something like that, that would be concealed in plain sight. I think that would make more sense. Stun guns? i got to tell you, I'm not a big fan of stun guns. 
I, I'm really not. Um, tasers are a different story. Tasers, you know, I got range with a taser. With a stun gun, I've got to touch you. And it, it, they don't work the way you see them in the movies where a guy touches the guy and in half a second he's on the floor and he can't move. They, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. It, it's, for some people, maybe it does, but I've seen plenty of times where they're used where the guy freaks out and jumps back. You know, and he's hurt and he's, he's somewhat incapacitated, but he's not on the ground. He's not totally incapacitated. Where with a taser, once I got the, the, the darts in you, man, you want to fight? Okay, we'll just hit the button until, you know, they even make, I've seen one taser. They make, it's specifically for civilian use. I can't remember who makes it now. But basically, if a bad guy comes at you, you shoot his ass with a taser and you push a button. And a button keeps the taser running for like a minute while you run away. You just lay it on the ground and leave his ass there for a minute of, uh, you know, and I, I, you get what you got coming. But the problem with tasers and stun guns is that they don't really benefit you in a multiple attacker scenario as much as even a good quality pepper spray will. I mean, if you got two blind guys, you know, that's better than one really electrocuted guy and one guy pissed off you electrocuted his buddy and you can't turn around and electrocute him before he clubs you in the head. And his electrocuted angry buddy finally gets up, gets his composure back together. Now you got two guys kicking your teeth in. Uh, I would much rather have those two individuals blinded to a degree, incapacitated to a degree, and be able to take that advantage. So I would see as a midterm thing pepper spray. I know it's more than you asked, but I'm okay with the open carry thing, but I don't like the big holstered look to it. I think it just says, again, hello, here I am, and, and I'm not about being hello, here I am. Let's take another call. Yeah, this is Joe in Tennessee. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on recent gas prices. I'm not complaining, but I'm really amazed at how low they are. I think I filled up at 3.19 a gallon today in Middle Tennessee. Um, looking at gas prices, looking at commodity prices, and everything that's happening in Europe, the time of year being in summer, I'm just really amazed. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what might be contributing to the gas prices we're having. Uh, on a quick second note, I've been looking at taking a pistols class. Um, I haven't taken any uh, formal formal training for the pistol other than my uh, military time. And one of the courses I looked at a review, and they said they had the people toss and or drop their pistol from the standing position onto the hard ground. You know, as you can imagine, a lot of people had various opinions on that. And I'm trying to see the utility uh, in doing that and the ways to balance out and what are the dangers and trying to figure out exactly why the instructors may have had people dropping in or tossing their pistol from a standing position. So uh, thanks for the show. Hope to hear this on the radio. Thank you. Well, talk about sneaking in two totally, completely unrelated and different questions. Let's start out with the gas price thing. Uh, the gas prices are going down, and everybody says that's good. There's a couple things at play here. First of all is that we've been ripped off at the pump for so long that people actually think that 3 bucks a gallon is cheap. I I'm not that old, and I remember $0.70 cent a gallon gas. Just saying. So, and I remember ninety to a dollar twenty being a very, very common range for a very long time. And I remember people getting really upset when it cracked a buck twenty. I remember that was a big deal. You know, I remember it going up to like a buck thirty during the first Gulf War, and people thought the world was going to end and it was over, and nobody could afford to live anymore. So, three bucks ain't exactly cheap, but it is much lower than it has been. 
And it's happening at a time when usually we're going the other direction. This is the summer. This is the busy season. Everybody's going somewhere. People are flying in airplanes and taking vacations and stuff like that. So this is usually the time when gas prices skyrocket and it's not happening. And even the things like natural gas are going down and even further and it's already cheap and oil prices and hey, this is good stuff, right? It's going down. Don't, don't get excited, guys. Why is the key? And why is because the entire nation, in fact, the entire planet is in a recession. And people are doing less, spending less, buying less. Spending is curtailed. Understand that everything you buy from a Walmart store got there with fuel. There was fuel to produce it, fuel to ship it to a warehouse, fuel to ship it to there, fuel for you to drive up there and buy it. So it's not just passenger cars. It's a total volume thing. The other thing we have to understand is that the oil and gas industries are running on a knife edge. They're running on a knife edge. Produce too much, suppress your own price. Produce too little, open the door for your competitor to take the orders while they're available and miss out on the opportunity to sell more of your fuel, more of your gas, more of your refinement, whatever part of the pie you play in. Okay? So... There is a knife edge constantly being walked. And that means when there is a 1% or 2% unplanned for increase in demand, it has a magnified increase on the cost of everything associated with oil and gas. When that increase comes in, they didn't, they didn't get the knife edge right. It, that, even though it's only 1% or 2%, it doesn't matter. It's 1% or 2% across the board, and that has a huge increase in demand when there's not supply to meet it. You only have to go 1% over demand before you start to have a magnified increase in price. This is also a two-edged sword on the knife edge for these guys. When there's a 2% or 3% drop in demand, and you've created a surplus because you read it wrong, then you have a magnified drop. So that's what you're seeing going on. A, recess, a recession that's curtailing spending, that's curtailing the use of petroleum. That's it. That's the whole thing. They ramped up to where they thought they needed to be. The demand is just underneath that. It's not a lot. It won't take time for them to retool, long for them to retool, but they're making money at three bucks a gallon, folks. Trust me. Now, who this is hurting, who this is really hurting is Russia. Now, oil actually just jumped. Uh, after the EU cut its latest deal, oil jumped up to about 80 bucks a barrel. Why? Because they're anticipating that since Euro's not, the Euro's not going to completely fall apart in the next couple weeks, that the demand in Europe will remain constant or begin to increase as some kind of confidence comes from its latest deal. So oil goes up. But the Russian economy is set up to run well at oil being at somewhere between 95 and 115 dollars a barrel. That works for Russia. $80 a barrel, that hurts Russia. I don't think most people understand how big a piece of the Russian economy is the oil business. It's a huge piece of the business. So Russia's not happy at $80 a barrel. They need that $90, $95 price point to really make things work for them. So that's, that's like kind of a side thing here. So that's what's going on. It's simply a decrease in demand, which has the potential to revitalize the economy a little bit, because if fuel costs less, then people tend to do more things with fuel. That creates activity. That starts to spur commerce. But as soon as that happens, the fuel... See, we're in this weird world right now where energy costs are suppressing the economy, but the economy drives the energy costs. 
So as soon as the economy begins to kick back in, the energy costs come in and cap the economy. We're in a real mess. We're in a real mess because it's just a symptom of the problem of the fact that this fiat currency debt-backed pile of crap is reaching a point of, of diminishing returns. And it's, and it's all interconnected, and it's very, very difficult to truly understand in the all five-minute answer. But the short answer, again, the recession uh, at a global level has dropped petroleum demand sufficiently uh, by a couple percentage points, and that pushed the, the, the price down. Look for it to go back up as these guys retool, because they'll cap the supply. Right? They'll reduce the supply. They'll pump less oil. They'll refine less oil to drive the price back up. That's the game that they play. And a lot of people get angry at them for it, but if they don't do it, they don't stay in business. If they don't stay in business, then we don't have oil and gas. So it's the economic system driving this lunacy, not so much the oil and gas directly. Let's take another call. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got so into that, I forgot your gun question. Okay, so... If I understand you right, there was some course you looked at. Students reviewing the course said they went there. They're on the firing line. They have the weapon cocked and loaded. And the, the instructors are having them drop the weapon to the ground and pick the weapon up and return to shooting, I would imagine. There's probably a couple reasons for this, but I'm not in love with the idea with my gun. Right? One, you're going to know your gun can handle being dropped. Two, you're going to get over the mythology that dropping a gun is going to make a discharge. Dropping a gun generally is not going to make a discharge. Uh, Mythbusters did extensive testing. because They did a movie myth with firearms. And the, the, remember the, the movie, what was it, with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, True Lies. And she had uh, shorts that her hands are this MAC-10, and she starts shooting it, and she drops it, and it goes tumbling down the stairs, and it just happens to kill all the bad guys as it, it gets set off as it goes down the stairs because, of course, it's a big, scary machine gun and capable of doing that. It, it, it didn't work. So most guns, if they're good, well-made guns, and you haven't done something stupid with the trigger mechanism, uh, are not going to discharge. And a lot, you know, a lot of these uh, guns that people carry today are double-action, only semi-autos, and they're certainly not going to discharge when they're dropped. So we, we learn to deal with... The, the malfunction because the shooter is as much a potential malfunction as the gun. And guns get dropped. They need to be picked up. They need to be cleared. They need to be fired. Right? Here's, here's the problem I have with that. If I drop my beautiful 1911 on the ground, it's going to mess it up. I don't mean it's going to break it. I mean it's going to mess it up. It's going to have pits in it and scratches and stuff like that. And I guess if I've got one of my ugly, ugly ass Austrian made Glocks out there, a couple scratches and dings and dents in it, I don't really care because it's an ugly ass gun to begin with, but I like my 45. And I don't, I, and I go through great pains. Now, if I ever end up in a situation where it gets beat up because I'm using it to save my life, fine. Fine, but uh, you'd be hard-pressed to get me to go dropping my sidearm on the ground uh, and, and, and doing physical, even cosmetic physical damage to it. I understand the reasoning, but I would pick somebody else. There's plenty of things you can train through. Without doing that, that sounds like somebody, I, I, I don't know what they're trying to prove. I'd like to know what school's doing that. I should ask Frank Sharp his opinion on that. Maybe I'm missing something, uh, but I don't train that way. I don't drop my guns unless I actually drop my gun by accident. And if you do and you're in the middle of shooting a course or something, you pick it up, you clear it, and you go on. And you, just like you would in real life. But standing there repeatedly dropping a sidearm and, and causing it damage Maybe not again. Maybe not functional damage, but cosmetic damage. 
Not not my seven hundred dollar nineteen eleven. You can do it with yours, but not mine. That's just my personal opinion. Even though I understand the rationale and logic behind it, let's take another one. Oh, Jack, I have a question about gardening and cover crops. Well, I'm putting in the garden as a horticulture bed, and I've backfilled it with compost, and uh, after I filled it with wood, of course. And my question now is: I saw on the DVD back to Eden and how they covered their garden with wood chips and I really like that but I really had a I don't know what to do if I should grow a cover crop and then like you did in your videos and mulch it and chop it up back into the soil or just use the wood chips like it is back to eating. I don't appreciate any input on this. Thanks Jack. Bye bye. Well a big thing to understand here is that cover crops and mulch have two different sets of goals. In some ways, they perform the same goal by protecting the soil from erosion. But that's kind of where things lead off. If I'm growing a cover crop, I'm doing one of two primary things. One, I'm adding organic matter to the soil with something like a chop and drop or a, 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 you know, a till in. And I don't do a lot of tilling in. I may do it one time when I first set up a bed. And after that, if I do a cover crop that, that, that I'm not doing just for nitrogen, uh, generally speaking, what I'll do is I'll just cut it and let it lay and let it become mulch. When I'm doing cover crops, it's generally because that bed at this moment in time, I am not prepared to plant other things in. I am not ready for some reason. It's in rotation, what have you. So instead of leaving it fallow, I'm planting a cover crop. And the majority of times when I'm doing a cover crop, at least some component of the seed mix is a legume which produces nitrogen in a symbiotic relationship with the soil fungus and soil bacteria. And since I'm doing that, I'm also nitrifying the soil. So I'm actually using the cover crop to create fertility. Mulch, specifically wood mulch, will add some moderate amount of fertility to the soil as the mulch that's in contact with the surface layer of the soil slowly decomposes. And that's the big thing, that wood mulch is actually only decaying a very thin layer at a time. Think of it like an MRI almost. You know, like an MRI takes this very thin slice of an image and then another one and another one and another one. And over years, if I put even 20 inches of wood mulch down, it'll eventually completely decompose into the soil. As I keep adding it, I keep replacing those little thin layers. But the pr primary decomposition is only at the very bottom of the mulch pile where the moisture is heavily contained and where it makes soil contact and where the most activity is. Because like everything in permaculture, it's all about the edge. So, do you mulch or do you cover crop? What are you doing? What are you planting? What time of year it is? What is the condition of your bed? If you have depleted soil that's in very big need of organic matter and you're at a time of the year where it's really easy to grow your cover crops, it would make sense to grow a huge, massive cover crop until that end to get that establishment done. If you're ready to plant 200 plants and occupy all the space that you want plants to occupy, immediately and then mulch in around them or put the mulch down is the easier way. Mulch first, pull back your mulch, plant into your mulch, um, then it would make sense to go ahead and mulch, assuming you have enough fertility built up in your soil. So it, it really comes down to, to making a decision based on those things. 
Wood mulch is outstanding stuff. It does wonderful, wonderful things. It's not the only mulch we can use. We can use straws. We can use cut cover crops. Uh, but I have no problem with using wood. So it depends on what you're growing, when you're growing it, and the current condition of your soil. And again, if it's depleted soil with almost no organic matter, then you need to be cover cropping the hell out of it in that first rotation. So if it's summer, I might look at a mix primarily of something like buckwheat and red cowpea. I'm going to get nitrogen from the cowpea, a huge organic matter yield from the buckwheat. When I cut that down and turn that into my soil, then I might mulch my wood right on top of that, give it about a week, and then plant a fall crop into it, uh, let's say, so that you know I can get my buckwheat to full term in about six weeks. And I can get buckwheat to grow even in the middle of the heat of summer. If I'm going into a winter season and I need a cover crop, I'm going to look at something like Austrian pea, Caius oat, Uh, possibly fava or bell beans to get a nitrogen and, and a high organic matter mix. The oats will give me a tremendous amount of organic matter. I might even look at things like radish, uh, oilseed radish, uh, or large, large cover crop types of mustards, uh, would be things that I would look at as well for something like that. So that's how I'm going to make that decision. It's not one or the other. It's adapting to the situation and the goals. It's also, what do I want to plant here? If I want to plant a whole bunch of perennials, and, and, and I'm not going to be digging, the, digging this thing up ever again, or at least for years, well, then wood mulch makes a lot of sense. If I'm going to be doing rotational annual croppings, then you know maybe I want access to the soil, so maybe I'm going to do a lot more with cover crops. Again, it's very, very situational to what you're growing, what your climate's like, and what you have access to. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jeff Lost Airplane in St. Louis. I was thinking about an economic upheaval in this country. One of the things I never heard discussed before was the human nature factor of, a, of a, the dollar bill going into free fall, that more and more, as the days go by and the dollar drops and drops and drops, you're going to have more and more people coming to the bitter realization that at the end of the week when they get their paycheck, it's really not going to be worth that much. And a lot of those people are going to say, well, shit, if the United States you know, economy is collapsing, what's the point of me going into work if I'm not going to have anything to show for it at the end of the week? And you're going to have a lot of people calling in sick up until the point you know, where the communication systems break down, the Internet goes down or whatever, phones don't work. But as long as there are phones, there are going to be people calling their jobs saying, I'm not coming into work today. And so you've got this huge... Uh, you know, moving, bustling economy coming to a screeching halt because people are all staying home. Something to think about. Just imagine all the stores, and you say people are going to have a run on the stores, they're going to go buy food, they're going to buy up all this stuff, you know, and because they're panicking. Well, who's going to sell it to them if the cashiers don't show up for their, you know, 8 and $9 an hour jobs at the market? Not going to be anybody there to open the store. And they're not going to be anybody there to, to sell them things and to get them things. Not going to be anybody there, certainly not going to be anybody to drive the trucks to deliver the stuff. And so the panic is going to be even worse. Well, to a degree, you're right. And it does kind of lead you into this cascading spiral. If I can't make enough money at work, uh, then there's no reason to go to work. If I, if I lose money by going, but then these people have to eat. 
So what, what, what you would see happen and what has happened in most instances is people immediately spending the money to arbitrage it into a physical good or another form of currency as the currency is devalued. You would also see corporations and companies beginning to pay their employees partly or maybe even in full in material goods versus the currency. So if you work for a company that produced food, they might send you home not just with some money at the end of the week, but a couple cases of food because that will keep you coming back because the company's going to try to survive and stay in business. Economies generally don't go away unless something extremely catastrophic happens. If it's just an economic problem, some other system of barter or exchange or economy takes its place and there's this shift and there's I'm not I'm not downplaying the misery, right? I mean there's a lot of freaking misery that happens during these shifts. If you talk to to anybody that maybe at least had a, a relative that lived through the Weimar Republic, they can tell you how much misery went there, but it wasn't like everybody just stayed home and didn't do anything. Because you can't afford to in an economic class. Money becomes more, not less important. Right up until the point where I have to spend more to get to work and back home than work pays me. Even if I'm only making a 50% profit, if it's gotten that bad, um, I'm still probably going to go to work. And here's the thing. By the time you get there, 20% of this country, maybe 30% of this country is already unemployed. You're in a it's almost that the other problems are so severe by the time you get to the point that you're talking about that it might be true, but it's irrelevant. Because people would be scrambling for any form of income, any form of work, anything they could do to continue to survive, any, any form of commerce that they can engage in, in a desperation mode. By the time you get to the point where you're better off not going to work than going to work for enough people for this to have a serious impact, the economy is completely dead anyway. We're already into the middle of the shift. So you're right. It just When we look at the way that it's played out in places like Argentina, like Greece, like the Soviet Union, nobody that was still employed walked away in any kind of relevant number simply because the number was too low when there was no place else to go. If everybody was a prepper, it might happen a lot more. Because if I can go home and take care of myself for three months while I figure out what to do with this shift, I might make that choice. But given the state of the average American where they don't have enough food to feed themselves for more than five days, they're going to do whatever it takes to continue to feed themselves. And if there's any type of gainful employment that's going to result in anything that allows them to maintain even half of their lifestyle, They're going to keep doing it because it's human nature. More and more people, of course, at the knife edge will go over to government support, but eventually, if enough of them do, then that system has to collapse. So what you're looking at is an economic collapse, and your observation, while accurate, is likely to be irrelevant by the time that it occurs. At that point, it, it, it's already so deep into a shift that we're already looking at reconstruction under a new system because it's the only choice that we'll have. This is what I think is important for people to understand. Unless we get into a, a all-out shooting war with complete and total collapse of everything, like we talked about yesterday with Selco, unless that happens, the people will not let there be no economy. 
They will make a new one. Because it's what, and if you look through history, it's what we've always done as people because it's necessary to our survival. The lone wolf doesn't work. We know the lone wolf, the army of one, doesn't work because human beings need commerce and exchange to function. It's how we are developed. We are social creatures. So we'll rebuild something. And, and like I said, it's far more likely that the companies employing people will be adapting to the shift so that they can stay in stay in some type of functional shape. Now, if we get to a point where the, the electricity is out, the gas is out, the water is out, if it goes to that level, then all bets are off. And you're going to see, what you'll see in this country is civil warfare. Just like we talked about yesterday. If that happens, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get factions and gangs and groups fighting with each other. You'll get a power vacuum, fight for control. It'll be the ugliest thing that you can possibly imagine times ten. But it's the least likely of the two scenarios. It's a much more likely economic shift a la Great Depression, currency rebasement, adaptation, rebuilding, restart. And what it looks like as it happens, we don't know. We have incredible things we can do with technology today that may make worse or mitigate that. One thing we know is the powers that are in control don't want to let go of the control, and they will use every bit of violence at their, at their, uh, at their uh, command to maintain this control. So whatever it happens, it's going to be very, very, very ugly, and that's why we need to be very, very, very prepared. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ian from Montana. Um, I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but I thought I'd just let you know in case not. Uh, they, uh, Matt Geo is at it again with their show, American Colony Meet the Hooterites. Um, I happen to live in the same town as the colony that's featured. And uh, I was talking to one of those guys this morning, and they said that, in his words, um, it is a complete mockery of our way of life. Um, I just thought I'd let you guys know that. Um, then another thing, I guess while I'm on here, i got a question for you. I know you've mentioned several times about your uh, incredible memory. I was just wondering if there's anything that you did in the past to increase your memory power. I know uh, mine is not very good. I was just wondering if there was anything I, I could do possibly to improve upon that. Anyway, I uh, love the show. been listening for about two months now. I think it's great. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, Jack, it's Ian from Montana again. I forgot to mention another thing that the guy said. Um, sounds like uh, you know, once I realized what kind of a bad show this was, the producers or somebody offered them a million dollars to do a season two of the show. I just think that speaks to how poor character these guys are that will exploit somebody for that kind of money. So anyway, have a good day. Thanks. Well, I haven't seen or even heard of that show, but it doesn't surprise me. And I played this call primarily because I get a lot of people saying to me when I talk about the fact that I've been approached by several different television networks to be part of some of these shows, why don't you go ahead and go on there and, and try to explain to society what this is really all about? Be an example of the other side of modern survivalism. And the answer is because they will make me look crazy or they will choose not to air me. 
That's because that's what these people do. I've talked to enough people that have been part of these shows. When they show up, they're told what they're going to say. They're told what they're going to do. They're told what they're preparing for. They say, what are you preparing for? And they go, well, I'm preparing for whatever happens. They go, no, you're preparing. Or they say, give me some, ex you know, they, they, they goat you into it. Give me some examples. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with an economic collapse. Uh, I've, I've noticed that there could be a coronal mass ejection. It's such down a great, oh, good. We don't have one of those yet. You're preparing for a coronal mass ejection. Well, no, I'm, I'm really actually more worried about pandemic. No, 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 no. We have a pandemic guy. You know, we, we, we have an economic collapse guy this season. We need a, a coronal guy. So you're the coronal guy, or they go, we got a coronal mask guy, but uh, but that's uh, that, it's like EMP, right? Oh yeah, but it's from the sun, and well, you know, you're preparing for an EMP, but I really am more worried. No, no, you're preparing for. That's how these people are. They are TV production scum. You want the truth about prepping and a prepper lifestyle? Go to YouTube. You'll see all levels of it, from very level-headed stuff to pretty radical stuff. But you'll actually see people for who and what they really are. You won't see them repackaged, repurposed, manipulated, controlled, used, and thrown away like shit paper. That's what these people are doing, and that's why I won't have nothing to do with them. Because I don't need them. What we have to understand in, in, in the, the part of society that's evolving, that's going forward technology-wise, the television networks are on the verge of freaking death. And I couldn't be happier. We are moving to a point where anybody anywhere with a video camera and some equipment and some editing software can compete with Nat National Geographic. And right now we think, well, they can't because they have budgets and they can travel places. We don't need Joe Blow to travel to Africa. We need a person in Africa to give us Africa. And we need Joe Blow, who lives in Montana, to give us Montana. We need thousands, dare I say millions of producers of content for to learn about prepping, to learn about gardening, to learn about anything, no matter what it is, and what people are really like. And I'll tell you what, the powers that be hate this. I've talked a lot today about the manipulators that are doing this crap, that want a cashless society and all. I'll tell you what, they're afraid of what they opened with the Internet. They thought it would be the greatest propaganda tool of all time. But do you know what's happening? Do you know what's happening? Right now, The people that you're told want you dead in the Middle East, some of them are actually listening to my voice right now, and they have the same goals and common ideals that you do. Do you know there's a group? There's a group of about 19 Iraqi contractors. You guys are probably hearing me through an interpreter right now that work with one of the one of our members of our audience that, that took the show to them over there on Reconstruction. He's probably home by now, but I bet those guys are still listening. And they would sit every day at their lunch break while they were building and rebuilding buildings and stuff like that, uh, construction workers basically, and listen to this show and think about how they could apply these principles of self-reliance and self, uh, self-sufficiency to their own lives in a country that had been torn apart by war. When you get people interacting with each other that way, talking to each other that way, And, and, and seeing each other that way, when, when, the, when the walls begin to come down because people are actually able to see the person on the other side, when we get out of our immature, asinine attitudes, like, I mean, I went to Huffington Post yesterday to see what people were saying about this Obamacare thing, and both sides in the comment section acting like children, calling each other names, saying just nasty crap about each other instead of actually having any understanding of what just occurred, right? But when people start to see each other's lives, they start to understand each other. And television has been a way to 
educate and entertain us to a degree, but it's also been a way to keep us apart. It's been an amazing propaganda tool because as long as you have gatekeepers, you can have a propaganda tool. When you have no gatekeepers, when anybody with a Canon camera can show you what's really going on, whether it's videotaping their backyard or videotaping police abuse, when anybody can do that, you can't paint a false picture anymore. And the truth is rising to the surface like it always does. It's just being accelerated now. And that's why when people say, well, you know, if you did do this, maybe you get some more exposure and bring people in. I'm like, I don't need them. I don't need them. If I ever get a chance to use that medium in a way under my control where I can be sure that nothing I do will make preppers look bad or look crazy or look stupid or look paranoid, if I ever get an ironclad way to do it, I'll do it. Anything else... Anything where my work and my word and my brand and my reputation can be taken out of context, no way, no how, no shape, no form. Now, on the memory thing, uh, quick answer on that as we're going along again today like we usually do with these shows. Um, I never did anything to enhance my memory. Um, I am, I've said this before on the air, and it's one of those things you know, like people like are surprised that I'll actually admit to. But I have no no qualms at all with stating this. I don't have any embarrassment or anything to hide at all. Uh, I am pretty much convinced as a child that I uh, had a condition that we call Asperger's. And, of course, I, I think it's something that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And it's actually considered a mild form of autism. And it actually is also generally characterized by a high IQ, uh, a really high memory. Uh, it's, it's a gift and a curse in a lot of ways. Some of the, the things that it causes are a lack of ability to read facial expressions, at times being highly introverted. And, and one of the big things is a lack of empathy or sympathy for other people. Uh, many times, actually, you can be very empathetic, very sympathetic to certain people, but other people, you just don't get it. And I still struggle with that today sometimes. A uh, very passionate person. I've worked to overcome the limitations and accentuate the gifts of, of this, this thing. And I don't think it's a condition. I don't think it's a disease. I think it's a personality. I think it's just who I am. I think that we've tried to label everything. We've tried to treat everything. And I am grateful to God that this condition wasn't named, known, and treated when I was a child. Because if I had been treated for this, I don't think I would have half, I don't think I would have 25% of the success that I have today. And if you have a child that's dealing with this, just simply let them become what they're going to become. Let them, let them focus on what interests them. Because what you'll find about a child with Asperger's is you'll worry that that child doesn't give a damn about math. Or does, maybe they do give a damn about math. It could be either or. But they love science and love history. I was the lazy student that always had the answer when I was asked. I would take a science class. I look at the book. It's 400 pages. Let's see. I can read about 50 pages an hour. So I can read this book, you know, in a few hours, and then I know what's in the book. And then I was bored for the rest of the school year. And when we'd get to a certain chapter, I'd reread that chapter like three times as fast because I already knew what it said, basically. And even though I never took notes, never did anything, you know, didn't turn in half of my assignments because I didn't see the point to it, got mediocre grades, I got an A on every test I ever took. And it, there was no reasoning with me. There was absolutely, there was no, I mean, there were so many teachers, God bless them, they tried. They tried to say, you know, if you applied yourself, I don't, and the real answer, and I was a little smarter than it just put it this bluntly, but the real answer was, I don't care. I don't care. You're wasting my time here. 
Let me take a test and go home. That's how I felt. And there's a lot of people out there like that. And if you're not that person, trust me, it's not necessarily great to be that person. There's a lot of struggles that go with it. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I was very good at making friends. Man, I was not good at making friends in like grade school and junior high. I had very few friends. And I lost a lot of friends because I didn't understand things like facial expressions and things like that. But I sure remembered stuff. Uh, but no, I don't have any exercises for a super memory or anything like that. I do think that most people can remember if you spend your time focusing on learning about things you're actually interested in knowing. If you ask me certain things from the past that I know I've read or learned but I didn't really care about, obviously it's, it's highly likely that I wouldn't know them. And I may know some really weird things. Like friends from grade school's phone numbers that I still have in my head or locker combinations, but I don't have all of them. It's just some of them that for some reason stuck. Maybe I used them more. Maybe they were the last ones in a series of something or something like that. But I'm not a guy that you can just, uh, you know, if I, here's, here's where the Asperger's kicks in. If I meet 10 people, stop, shake their hand, get their first names, uh, likely I won't remember half of their names, maybe more. But yet, um, if I have a conversation with them and they tell me about their life, I may say, what was your name? And the guy might be like, Tom. Oh, yeah, Tom. Okay, now I remember your name. And he feels like slighted. And I'll go, yeah, you told me about this and this and this and this and this. And the guy's like, wow, you don't even remember my name, but you remember all that. Well, those, I, I don't find names very interesting, honestly. <laughs> I don't. I mean, your name to me is like, and I get so many names thrown at me, it's easy to forget. But when you start telling me that you had a kid that did something or you had a garden or something, like, okay, so that's interesting. So that goes into the, the bank under save, right? And I have to hear the name four or five times. But I can hear the story about how your, your kid loves the garden once and it'll be forever associated with you. And as soon as I make the link, I'll remember all the details. So it's just, I don't know, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chris out in Midland, Texas. I just want to make a quick comment. I had a, I took on the paleo diet, paleo primal diet back in um, March 1st, and since then I've lost about 27 pounds. Uh, also, my, my triglycerides went down, my uh, total cholesterol went down, my HDL went up, and uh, my blood pressure went down as well, more energy, all the benefits that they've talked about, taste of, uh, from foods gets better, uh, from vegetables and fruits. But here's the thing, Jack. I I didn't do any organic-based foods, uh, like with regards to meats. I I just bought whatever you know Tyson had for sale on chicken, and and just bought the the, the cheapest meat I could uh, that I could buy in the store. You know, make deals and such like that. I didn't buy the grass-fed beets and the and the cage-free uh, hens and such like that. So my question for you, Jack, is um, if I did suddenly go to the cage-free chickens and the uh, and the grass-fed beefs. What would I expect to find, or what would I expect to see? Would my blood chemistry get even better? Would my would I lose even more weight? I mean, I, I'm just trying to quantify it better. Uh, anyway, uh, hope to hear from you. Thanks, bye. Well, it's a good question. I played it for two reasons. One, so that people that are considering the paleo lifestyle but can't afford to go the all organic, grass fed, etc. route won't won't prevent themselves from going uh, paleo. You're better off eating mass-produced food that meets the paleo requirements than eating mass-produced food that doesn't meet the paleo requirements. And I'm not that big, heavy on organic as a whole. I just see places where it makes sense and it's obviously a little bit better. 
If I look at something like poultry, for instance, and I go with organic, I'm going to get probably a little bit better of a product, but it's still going to be mostly a grain-fed product. right? And it's still going to be processed pretty much the same way that mass-produced poultry is. It's a statement that I care about the life of the thing I'm consuming. But don't think I never eat a piece of Tyson chicken. I don't like to think about it when I do. And if I were independently wealthy to the point where I could have so many chickens that I would never eat a chicken that wasn't off my own property, because uh, I had you know a hundred acres and and a huge chicken production system going on, I, I would never eat anything else. And if I had the ability to always eat pastured poultry, I would. You know, but when you have people coming over and you're you're in a situation where you're trying to feed ten people like I do sometimes, I can't afford it. Just like anybody else, I have my own personal limitations. And you know, I had a guy over recently said, "Man, this steak is awesome." He said, "This must be some of that grass-fed stuff you're talking." About. I said, "Dude, that's a Walmart steak. I just cooked it really well. You know, I did a good job of seasoning it and I cooked it with the right technique." Now, that doesn't mean I don't think there's an advantage to trying to eat as much natural food as you can. Grass-fed beef is great, etc. And I think it's better for you, but I think better comes in degrees. And I think the leap you make from getting off breads and pastas and high starch and high sugar to a primarily meat, vegetable, and moderate fruit, seed, and nut diet is a huge leap. And then the leap you make by going from there to like kind of a fully all-natural, no-contaminant environment is also a large leap, but it's a smaller leap than the first leap. The first leap is a chasm. The second leap is a valley. Right, it's, it's it's a canyon versus a crack in the ground, and it's where we should be trying to get to. And there's easy things that we can do. Like I know that Rob's not big on dairy, but I don't have a problem with dairy. And I think some of Rob's stuff, some of his leanings, are because of his personal conditions, where he has lactose issues uh, and he has issues with um, with gluten. So he's more anti-gluten and anti-lactose stuff than maybe he would be if it was just pure nutrition. I think anybody is going to have a little bit of bias. But if I want to do something like make yogurt and I don't have access to raw milk, and there's occasionally I can get my hands on it, but usually it's difficult. But when I go to the store, the difference between buying um, organic milk and, and mass-produced milk is very, very small. And now I know I'm not getting RGBH in my milk. And would I prefer a raw milk to just mass-produced organic milk? Yeah, but the cost is so inconsequential, that's what I'm going to do. Same thing with eggs. I can get eggs locally sometimes, and sometimes I need some eggs, and I go to the store and I buy them, and I'll buy organic. And I think that making these choices when we can helps us gravitate even further across that second leap. If I buy a whole hog of pastured poultry for a few hundred dollars and have it butchered and put that in my deep freezer, fine. If I have people coming over and I want to smoke meat like I'm going to do this weekend for people, I'm going to have to go out and buy pork. I, I, I don't have enough to put together what I need to for the, the group that I'm going to see on Monday. So it, it's going to be, you know clean and properly taken care of and I'm going to try to buy organic meat but it's not going to be pastured because I just don't have it I don't have access to it this weekend and I wasn't really planning on this until a few weeks ago so it's not like it doesn't have to be puritanical I guess is the thing and if you can't do but little tiny bits of that but you can get yourself to the paleo world then do it because the the health improvement is huge you know I occasionally corn that's something where I, if there's if there's a choice 
and I can get organic corn for corn on the cob, if I don't have any that's grown yet for the year, uh, for myself, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that every stinking time to avoid the atrazine in the GMO, right? It, it, that's, that's not even about so much just organic. That's I don't want to eat genetically modified food when I don't have to. Yet occasionally I'll make some salsa up and I'll go buy some corn chips. And if there's no organic chips at the store and I don't have anything to make my own chips with at home, will I eat some Doritos? Hell yeah. Or not I don't. Doritos is a bit far because they got all that powdered crap on them. But like Tostitos or like Mission Corn, I'll eat it. I don't want to. I don't like it. I want it out of our food supply. But it is what our food supply is. And I'm not a purist. I would love to be. But I don't have the resources to be a purist yet. And when I do get the resources, I think I'm working myself to a point where I can be 90% purist. I'm not going to expect others to do the same thing. I'm going to expect that they make the best choices under the circumstances that they're living in. So is it worth it to try to go to higher quality organic meats, grass-fed meats, and things like that? Yes. Should you put yourself in the poorhouse to do it? No. Should you let the fact you can't do it now hold you back from doing paleo? No. But some places you can make some real gains are with poultry you can go organic relatively affordably. And the best way to do it is to buy whole chickens, buy 10, 20 of them at a time, And either make them whole like roasted chicken or if you want things like drumsticks and wings, cut them up and put them in the packaging in your freezer. That's one way that you can uh, make the most of it. Learn to use them over and over again. So like if we bake a chicken, then the next day we take some leftovers off it and we maybe do a salad with, with chopped chicken on top of it. Now we've got two meals out of it. Then we usually, there's, we've picked it pretty hard by then. So usually what we do is we take the whole thing in a big Ziploc bag and freeze it. The next time we do a chicken, we do the same thing, and then we take the two carcasses together into a big stock pot, and then we're going to go ahead and make chicken soup out of it. So that, that makes these things work better. But I really don't want people to hold themselves back from paleo because they think they need to have grass-fed, and they got to have pastured this and pastured that. Those are things to slowly transition to where you can find affordable ways to do it. And what you'll find is the more you look in your local area, to find people to do direct business with, the more affordable this will become for you. Uh, you'll be able to, to, to do more and more if you're buying, you know, because a lot of people, you know, you go down to a farmer's market, you see a guy selling chickens, and a chicken costs 15 bucks. It's a pastured, beautiful chicken. It's never spent a day in a chicken house of horrors. It's been taken good care of. It's been given a little bit of feed and a whole lot of pasture, and it's been able to be a chicken, and it's a nice, plump chicken. It's good to eat. It tastes better than anything you'll get in the store, but it's 15 bucks. Why? He's selling one of you at a, at a farmer's market. A lot of times if you talk to that guy, and instead of buying that frozen chicken at the farmer's market where he's got to go through a bunch of hoopla, if you drive out to his farm and buy 20 chickens, you can buy those chickens for 8 to $10. A lot of times that's the case, especially if you say, look, uh, I'll pre-order them. So he knows when you're coming. So it's like he's got two weeks to get them ready for you. They'll make deals like that. So those are some other things to consider. But don't let the puritanical standpoint keep you from doing it. I would rather you go out and get yourself into this lifestyle using the food that's available to you than wait to try it someday that may never come. Because I think the other thing that will happen is, Here's the big thing. I've said this before. I'll wrap up with it today. When I first started doing the paleo lifestyle, 
I ate like a maniac as I transitioned. As I got off all of these carbs, in the first week, I felt like crap as my body was detoxing. But if you stop smoke, smoking uh, you know, heroin or something, you're going to feel like crap too. So I accepted that's just the way it was. And then, you know, I, I, then I like, got turned on and it, like, my energy started to come back and my body started to reshape. And I ate like a tiger. You know, I would sh I would shove down like a whole freaking giant 16 ounce ribeye with no problem, and a small sweet potato with a big giant pile of broccoli and a salad, and that was dinner. And now I eat a little bit less than that, but I only eat pretty much one time a day with a little snack in the middle here and there. You'll eat less eventually, so go ahead and get on it. And and, and by the time you get to that point where you're eating less. You can afford more expensive uh, cuts of meat and things like that that are higher quality. And occasionally, you know what? We're human beings. We need to have fun. And occasionally I will go out and I'll eat something that's totally non-paleo. Usually when I'm traveling on vacation or something like that, because it's enjoyable. It's a moderation. It's not the mainstay of my diet. Again, I know I talk about this a lot, but people keep talking about it and asking about it. And everybody has the same kind of story with the results. Health is a huge part of being able to survive. It really is. And I just haven't found anything that's worked for as many people as well as doing this does as easily as it's worked. I mean, that's the big thing with me. You can count calories and lose weight, but you ain't going to do it with the ease that you do it with this style of living, folks. And uh, survivalism is about taking the simplest, most direct approach that gives you the most positive result. When it comes to diet and nutrition, paleo is what's worked for me. Maybe you give it a try. Maybe it works for you. Thanks to everybody that called in the last couple weeks, whether your call made it on the air or not. I appreciate your contribution. Probably a few less people got on the air than normal because of some interruptions in programming. I'll try to rectify that in the future. Again, if you've called more than a couple weeks ago, please call in again with your call. And maybe I'll go to that new screening methodology with Dorothy screening the calls and picking out the best calls versus maybe just me picking out good calls until I run out of space and atrophy off. Maybe they'll get some higher quality calls, but I, I can't see that because you guys all make awesome calls. Again, thank you to everybody today. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
shall shoot.